Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a rainy June 22nd, 2023, and I have two um, uh, new FDA approvals to talk about, one new drug and one expanded indication. Uh, first, let's talk about glofitimab, brand name Columvi, or Columvi, or I guess if you're into Roman numerals, column six, uh, was approved on June 15th. Uh, this is an accelerated approval for relapsed refractory uh, large cell, uh, large B cell lymphoma after two or more lines of treatment. This is the same approval from about a month earlier of epcoritimab. And I'll kind of talk about some of the differences between these two drugs as we go through. They are both CD20, uh, CD3 bispecific T cell engagers. Uh, this approval is based off of a single arm study of 132 patients. Um, the uh, overall response rate uh, of all comers was 56%, 43% complete response rate, pretty decent. Uh, median duration of response, 18 months, and that uh, total response rate and duration of response are, are similar to epcoritimab. Uh, I will point out explicitly in the approval, they mentioned uh, that this study, this pivotal study, excluded patients with CNS disease at baseline or in the past. I didn't see that in the epcoritimab approval. Um, so a couple big differences. So pharmacologically, um, from an MOA, they're similar. Uh, glofitimab is IV, whereas epcoritimab is subcutaneous. So that's that's the, the biggest difference. Um, the, the dosing schedule for this approval for glofitimab, uh, day one, cycle one, you get open entuzumab. You don't even get the drug <laughs> on cycle one, day one. You get you know a regular CD20 monoclonal antibody and open entuzumab, one gram. IV, uh, and then on uh, on day eight you get a 2.5 milligram dose of glofitimab. That requires hospitalization for at least 24 hours for observation to observe for cytokine release syndrome. There is a box warning for cytokine release syndrome, similar to epcoritimab. There is not a box warning for ICANS for the neurotoxicity, but there is for for epcoritimab. Um, our vial size here is 2.5 and 10 milligram vials. So the first dose of this agent is 2.5 milligrams. That's very different than epcortimab where you have to do like a double dilution to do the first dose and then another dilution for the next ramp up dose. So there's a lot more drug waste with epcortimab than with glofitimab. So day one, a gram of abinutuzumab. Day eight, uh, IV uh, glofitimab 2.5 milligram. Day 15, 10 milligram uh, glofitimab. And then... Um, the next cycle, uh, 21 days after you begin this, cycle two, day one, you do 30, mi 30 milligrams of glofitimab, and that's the dose going forward every cycle thereafter. Um, there are uh, pre-medications required here for tumor lysis syndrome, uh, precautions for that, uh, suggestions, or not suggestions, consider antimicrobial prophylaxis for the following, herpes virus, CMV for those at risk, that's not necessarily defined, but you could imagine uh, patients with a history of, of CMV uh, antibody positivity. Uh, and uh, pneumocystis gervicii prophylaxis, it says consider for those things. Um, Pre-medications include prior to um, basically every dose in cycle one, DEX-20, acetaminophen, and then an antihistamine. And then for cycles two through 12 going onward, um, it's acetaminophen and uh, your... Um, your diphenhydramine or equivalent uh, before each dose, plus dexamethasone if there was prior cytokine release syndrome in the past. And the day 15 ramp up dose of 10 milligrams and the subsequent dose of 30 milligrams, the location of that is dependent on prior history of cytokine release syndrome. If there is, then that determines whether or not patients are, are admitted inpatient or not for that. 
Um, so that's glofitimab. Um, you know, we can't compare efficacy uh, between uh, glofitimab and epcoritimab. Um, uh, different studies, um, these are both accelerated approvals. So uh, we'll be watching this space uh, to see how these compare to, uh, to CAR T, to autotransplant, et cetera, as I'm sure the companies will try to move them up uh, in an earlier line uh, of setting. But certainly, uh, you know, uh, good disease activity here in the patients uh, in these studies. Okay, June 20th, the FDA approved talazoparib plus enzalutamide for homologous recombination repair gene mutated metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. So this is based on the Talapro 2 study, which was published in Lancet Oncology in, um, earlier this month. Um, a little confusing here because the publication of this study is 400 patients in each arm. And the, uh, the information from FDA about the approval states that the, the number of patients in each group are 200. So this approval looked at um, basically anybody with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, they were asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, but they, they weren't necessarily, um, they, they have the protocol here and the inclusion criteria doesn't say how minimally symptomatic uh, was determined. They were on antigen deprivation therapy. Uh, they could have received a taxane in the past uh, with their initial diagnosis for metastatic disease. Uh, but it had to be at least like a month before uh, their last dose coming into this. They could have also received a CYP17 inhibitor like abiraterone. About 6% had received that. 22% received prior taxane in the study. You know, 70% of these folks were Gleason score 8 and above. So 30% were Gleason score less than 8. So 7 at the highest. Um, now, they then uh, break up these groups, uh, these 800 patients, 400 randomized to enzalutamide, standard dose enzalutamide, plus talazoparib, or to single-agent enzalutamide. 7% um, of the patients had a BRCA1 or 2 alteration. 20% had a homologous recombination repair, or HRR mutation. 27% were unknown, and then the rest were did not have any. Um, so at the time of the publication, you know, more than a quarter of the patients in this study, they did not know if they had a homologous recombination repair deficiency, and that affects how it's reported in, in the Lancet piece. In the, uh, in the package insert and what the FDA says is they must have gone back and looked at those like 27 patients, 27% of patients that they did not know their HRR status and found that almost all of them had some homologous recombination repair deficiency. That's the only way the numbers work out. Um, so these were metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients, basically becoming castration-resistant for the first time and becoming metastatic, but still minimally symptomatic, okay? Uh, so, so that makes it somewhat fair that they're not getting docetaxel here. If they're really symptomatic, you'd, you'd want to give them uh, chemotherapy with taxane. So they're minimally symptomatic, uh, and they're getting an enzalutamide single agent, which, okay, not horrible, uh, and then enzalutamide plus talazoparib. Now, t the talazoparib dose here is 0.5 milligram, and you might think, oh, you know, because of toxicity, we need to dose reduce. And there certainly were more toxicities in the talazoparib, especially hematologic toxicities. I think there were maybe two cases of MDS. But the reason for this is there's actually drug-drug interaction between enzalutamide and talazoparib. And I think this is really important for the oncology pharmacist to, to appreciate. Enzalutamide is a potent 3A4 inducer. It's like phenytoin, rifampin, its level of CYP3A4 induction if you look at AUC ratios. However, it is a P-glycoprotein inhibitor. 
And talazoprib is not metabolized by 3A4, but it is a P-glycoprotein inhibitor transport pump. Um, and therefore, in the presence of enzalutamide, talazoprib concentrations are double, hence the 50% dose reduction from the normal one milligram dose you use in like breast cancer to 0.5 milligram used here uh, in combination with um, with enzalutamide. And it's really important if somebody tries to do something off-label as people try to do and try to add telozoprib with darolutamide, apalutamide. may not be the same, but we know for sure what that dose should be uh, with enzalutamide. Okay, so minimally symptomatic patients, they were just basically on luprolide or androgen deprivation therapy. Um, they could have been also on like a first-generation antiandrogen like bicalutamide. And then they progress and they get enza and telozoprib or just enza, um, you know, uh, if you were to sequence these, you would want abiraterone first, followed by enzalutamide. Um, it's very reasonable to, to ask yourself, would these patients, if there was a third arm and they got docetaxel, would that have been better, right? That's very fair to ask, all right? Um, or uh, or cabazitaxel for the, uh, the those 20-so um, percent who had ever received uh, ataxia in the past. All right, so our primary endpoint here is radiographic progression-free survival. And if that is significant, then based on their statistical analysis plan and hierarchy, then they can go and do overall survival assessment, which is immature at this time. So for our primary endpoint of um, radiographic progression-free survival, so that is you can see the imaging, uh, you can see the METs, the new METs, or the, the METs getting bigger on, um, on scans. Uh, the median uh, time was not reached in the talazoprib arm, but was 13.8 months in enzalutamide monotherapy. It's a hazard ratio of 0.45, somewhat impressive, 95% confidence interval of 0.33 to 0.61. This is not in the publication, but it is in the FDA report. Now, the approval is for any homologous recombination um, gene mutation. That's BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, ATM, uh, PALB2. But they, they call this in the FDA, in the, in the label, an exploratory analysis, and this is in the PI, that if you're BRCA mutated, now, this is only 71 and 84 patients respectively, relatively small. Um, the hazard ratio for, ra for radiographic progression-free survival is 0 0.2, uh, closer to zero than it is to one. With And you, you only have about 150 patients here, and our 95% constable is pretty tight at 0.11 to 0.36, suggesting that this is there's not a lot of variability here in this. And then the rest of the patients that have non-BRCA HRR mutations, that has a ratio is 0.72, uh, and that constable is 0.49 to 1.07, and the whole population is 0.45. So it really looks like the benefit here is for radiographic progression-free survival is almost entirely driven by um, uh, by the BRCA mutated uh, cohort. Um, now, when the, the overall survival Katmeyer curve is maybe like a third to 50% of the way mature, that's in the appendix, the Katmeyer curves perfectly overlap. Um, I'm, I'm very confident there's no overall survival benefit to doing telosoprib in the first line for these patients that don't have BRCA mutations, it, it might have for those that have BRCA mutations, but that's gonna depend on second line therapy, right? Did they get, if they have you know, a BRCA mutation, did they get a PARP inhibitor upon progression, say after enzalutamide or docetaxel? Um, so uh, 
we've seen this in other disease states. The PARP inhibitors, most of their benefit is really in, uh, you know, those BRCA mutated. It's probably stronger in germline BRCA mutations than somatic BRCA mutations. So we've seen this before, and I will remind listeners of the Sonia study we talked about last week, where they looked specifically at the sequence of cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors in metastatic breast cancer, uh, where second line was as good as first line uh, in terms of overall survival with decreased cost and decreased toxicity. Uh, I would expect we might see the same thing for talazoprib, certainly in non-BRCA uh, repair uh, deficiencies. That's my, that's my guess if I look into the crystal ball, which, which doesn't exist, of course. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, uh, doses matter. Thank you.